Pam and I, my wife, we've been married for, for 22 years, and this has been the best 22 years of my life, and I uh, just uh, love marriage. Uh, about a year ago, though, I had, I had one of those milestone birthdays, and I'm not going to tell you which one it was. You can figure it out. But I had one of those milestone birthdays, and it made me think back to when Sam and I started dating in high school. And so I went back and I started listening to some of the music we listened to when we were dating in high school. Now, I know some of you, like, this is weird. Uh, I actually, I was, I was flipping through the radio stations on my, in my car, and I, and I flipped to the oldie station, and they literally played one of the songs that was, and I'm like, that's not supposed to be, I'm not that old, right? Yes, my, my high school genre is now the oldies. It's terrible. Uh, uh, totally sidetracked. Doesn't mean anything. Uh, so <laughs> I was listening to these songs that reminded us when we first started dating. And, and, and there's one of these corny songs. Just forgive me. And go with me here, though, okay? Brian McKnight had the song, called Back at One, all right? And here, here's, here's the lyrics for you. He says, one, you're a dream come true. Two, I just want to be with you. Three, girl, it's plain to see you're the only one for me. Four, repeat, repeat steps one through three. Five, make her fall in love with me. And then the climax of the song if ever I believe my work is done, I will start back at one. I know, it's corny. It is the corniest song ever. Uh, but, you know, as I was listening to that song, it made me think, like, you know, we've been married for, for, for 20-some years. And uh, it made me think about, like, when we were dating, all the things I used to do to try and impress her. Uh, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Like, uh, when we were dating, I'd always try and make sure I looked just right. And, and I wanted to, I mean, I don't have hair to comb anymore nowadays, but like my hair, I used to put so much gel in it because I wanted it to all stay the right direction and not pop up. And, and I, I mean, I looked so good. I, I remember doing all these crazy things to try and make her laugh. I remember one time walking in a church and I walked in late intentionally and I walked to the front of the church and I tripped over my feet and did a somersault because I thought, man, that's how you impress a girl, right? You make her laugh. Uh, she cringed. I don't know how I, she married me anyways, but... Um, it was fun thinking back in our high school days of when we dated, and uh, then it kind of, here's the reality of it. Like, this is where relationships can be dangerous. This is, is marriage can be dangerous. Because sometimes you kind of assume, well, she knows I love her, right? And the longer you're married, you're kind of like, I don't have to do those same things. I don't have to try and impress her anymore because, as Beyonce say, I put a ring on it, Right? And so pretty soon you just start in marriage and relationship, you start going through the motions and you're like, hey, I don't have to impress her anymore. I can, I can wear, you know, I can wear my uh, holy cutoff t-shirt and, you know, I can smell sometimes. Like, it doesn't really matter because she's already married to me. I already got her. <laughs> uh, that is when relationships become dangerous. When we stop being intentional, we stop pursuing our spouse, our loved one. And that principle is so true in marriage, but isn't that principle so true in like many aspects of our life? I mean, like you think about this, you think about like, like dating or you think about work or, or friendships or parenting. Like you start out with all this intentionality, man, I'm going to be so good at this and I'm going to do this well and I'm going to be organized and I'm going to be, uh, man, I'm a purposeful, right? And then you kind of just 
get into it a little bit and you start just going through the motions and you forget some of that intentionality and you begin to drift, showing up and going through the motions. This also happens with our faith. There might have been this intentionality at one point, this excitement, this purpose, this, man, I'm going to be great. And then all of a sudden, it's just kind of like, all right, it's just another thing we do when we're just going through the motions. In fact, there's a church in the Bible called the Church at Ephesus. And what I love about the Church at Ephesus is, is it's unique because you get to see the entire lifespan of this church. The Church at Ephesus, we get to see it planted in the book of Acts. And it is a church on fire. I mean, we talk about the church being a movement. The church in Ephesus was literally a movement. We get to see that church start, and we also get to see that church begin to decline and that church begin to to, to struggle. In fact, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, he wrote these letters to these different churches. And he actually wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he said. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I know how you've persevered and endured many hardships for my name. and You have not grown weary. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. That's the church at Ephesus. They're, they're awesome. But the very next verse, verse 4, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus just said, listen, you're no longer intentional and passionate about the love that you had in the very beginning. You're just going through the motions. And so here's, here's Jesus' recommendation, verse 5. He says, remember how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you first did. I love that because that is so true in our relationships and life. There's that excitement and passion, and then pretty soon things just start going, and we just kind of show up and go through the motions. And Jesus says, listen, you church at Ephesus, I care about you, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to repent and do the works you did at first. The question is, what are the works that the church at Ephesus did at first? What made them so great in the beginning? What made them great that they've forgotten along the way? That's what we get to see today. We've been in a series in the book of Acts for a majority of this year. In fact, uh, somebody asked me this week, when did we start? We started in February. So we are uh, umpteen months, uh, double-digit months now in this uh, series, and it's been awesome. Looking at how, how does a church become not just an institution? Like so many churches are institutions. We come, we, we come for religious services, we put some money in the offering, and then we walk away feeling good about ourselves. But how does a church actually become a movement? Because in the book of Acts, a church is a movement that is impacting everything about it. And that's our desire at Restoration is how do we become a movement? We're in Acts chapter 19, and we get to see the early stages of that church at Ephesus. This is the beginning of that church. Paul is the church planter. He's at Ephesus. Now, remember, we've talked last couple weeks about Ephesus. A couple things we need to know about this city in Ephesus. Uh, It is uh, home of the Temple of Artemis, which is actually one of the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world. It is four times bigger than the Pantheon. It is remarkable. Ephesus was a city that was dominated by the magical and the occult practices. So you think about like like everything supernatural, right? Like like this was that city, like the Salem witch trials had nothing on Ephesus. Uh, uh, They had superstition and witchcraft and demonism and all the stuff happening in their city. Yet the text that Jake read for us this morning in chapter 9, those few verses, we get to see the power of God come upon this church at Ephesus, where the power of God is literally unleashed on this church, that they literally become a movement. 
that, that the, entire, uh, the entire continent of Asia is able to hear the gospel in part because of this church. And how do they do that? Because this church had this authentic faith, this authentic relationship with Jesus. Uh, and this is a, th- these are the deeds that, that Jesus said, I want you to go back to. And so we're going to look this morning, we're going to see three deeds of, of authentic faith, three steps of authentic faith. The first step of authentic faith is there's a commitment to the proclamation and to living out the gospel. Here's what it said in verse 8. Paul's in Antioch. Excuse me, Paul's in Ephesus. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. Now, this is Paul's pattern. We've talked about this throughout the book of Acts. Paul's pattern is enter the city, and he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the Jews. He's like, these people, we have some connection. They understand the Old Testament. So Paul comes into the synagogue. He's preaching about Jesus on on Sundays, but the people are, are, are rejecting it. They're not listening. They're rejecting. They're becoming stubborn. In fact, it says that they began to persecute him. Verse 9, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief and began speaking evil of the way, he withdrew from them and he took his disciples and reasoned daily at the hall of Tyrannus. Again, the Jews became stubborn. They're not willing to believe. They're beginning to cause problems and persecute. So what does Paul do? Paul starts the first uh, mobile church, right? He literally becomes a portable church. He rents this hall, this hall from a guy by the name of Tyrannus. His name literally means tyrant. If you can get this idea, he probably wasn't a very good landlord, right? He just is not a good landlord. He has the name of Tyrant. So Paul, uh, his historical records say that Paul rented this hall daily from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, in this culture, what would happen is you'd, go, you'd get up and you'd go to work in the morning. You'd work from like 7 to 11 in the morning. And then that culture, they would have siestas, right? Where they'd go and they'd have lunch and they might rest for a little bit. And they might do a little work in the garden, kind of the heat in the day. Rather than working, they're going to go home and do this. And then you'd go back to work at like four in the afternoon and work till eight or nine at night. And I don't know, like, I sure think siestas sound good. Anybody else agree? Like, amen to siestas? Like, I'd be okay with a siesta. But this was what Paul did, is every day during that siesta, from 11 to 4, he rented this hall and is literally preaching the gospel to people that are coming through on their, their break. And a result of this, verse 10 it says, Paul continued for two years. And listen to this. So all the residents of Asia, they heard the word of the Lord. Like, do you hear how remarkable that is? To think about this, to think about the ancient, the ancient world. Like Paul's preaching in this hall. People are coming and listening. And those people then are, are so passionate about that message, they're taking the message back to their hometowns, back to their neighbors, back to wherever they are. And it literally said the entire nation or the entire continent of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That, like, can we just grasp, like, how remarkable that is? This isn't just people coming and listening to Paul. This is the people coming and saying, man, I hear about this life-changing message of Jesus, of Jesus dying on the cross, so we could be made into a right relationship with God. And they're so blown away by that message that they are taking that message with them back to their towns, and all across the, the, the continent so that everybody, again, this is probably a summary statement, but the majority of people had heard the word of God. That's pretty awesome. 
So this church at Ephesus, the first step of authentic faith is there's this, this commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. Second deed of authentic faith is there's this, this whole surrender to God. There's this, this, this people that are wholly surrendered to God, not just trying to use God for what he can do for them. Look at this, verse 11. It says, God was doing, and you might underline this word, extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. So that even his handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away, and the sick with diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, I told you underline that word extraordinary because this book is written by a doctor by the name of Luke. Luke's a doctor by profession. He's recording this in the book of Acts that we're reading. And so when he says this is extraordinary, like this isn't like some simple, normal uh, stuff that is happening. This is miraculous. Paul, through the power of God, is having the ability to have this impact on people all around them. And Luke is like, this is, this is, extra, this is remarkable. This is miraculous. And this is what happens is when we are, are a people who are committed to the proclamation of the gospel, we don't just tell people about it. The, the message is met with word and with deed. And that's what is happening. Paul is not just preaching to people, he's ministering to needs. He's meeting needs. God's healing people through him as an evidence that God is at work. And it's remarkable to think about, like, like, like this is what God calls us to do. To be people who proclaim the gospel and live it out and impact people around us. Again, uh, one of the things you have to remember about Ephesus is this is a city that was known for, their, their, for the demonic, for sorcery, for magic. And so as Paul is doing all of these miracles in Ephesus, this is God showing himself to being greater than all of the supernatural, all the magicians, all the, the witches, and, and I don't know, all the other weird people like that. He's like, hey, look what God is able to do. He's greater than all of that. In fact, God's working so powerfully, it even said that his handkerchiefs and his apron, you might think of like a cover, his coveralls when you're doing, uh, working on a car. Even his handkerchief and his, his apron was being used to heal. Again, it's not that these items themselves were, were magical or had some special power, but they were connected to Paul. They were symbols of a man who was wholly surrendered to God. They were symbols of a man who was, who was uh, sold out completely to God. In fact, trying to figure out, like, like, what would be the picture that I could give you of this? And the best picture I can think about it, I'm in this uh, cohort with a bunch of other pastors, and we gather twice a year to kind of talk ministry and to grow and to uh, encourage one another. And one time we went to uh, my friend's church in, in Reno. We went to South Reno, North Reno, somewhere in Reno. We went to Reno is where we went. And uh, we're meeting some of the guys at his church. And there's one of the guys that we meet that is so, man, you walk into a room and, and you're just like, you feel the warmth of sunshine around you. Like this guy exudes joy. And it's, it's remarkable because like you walk in and you're like, whoa, like I'm almost blinded by how much joy this guy has. You know what that is? That's a guy that is fully sold out to God. That is a guy that is fully surrendered to God. Like, isn't, isn't that what we want for our lives? 
to be people that we literally just overflow with the goodness of God to those around us. That's what happenings, that's what happening here with Paul. Paul is so sold out to God that God just flows out of him to the people around him. It's possible for us when we fully are surrendered to God. But look at the contrast. Verse 13. There were some itinerant Jewish exorcists. Like, I didn't know that was a job. Maybe that's something we can apply for. Verse 13. There were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who invoked the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure to you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. These uh, exorcists, they saw the power that Paul had, and they're like, hey, we're just going to, we want some of that power. We want to be as good as him. And so they begin to say, hey, hey, you demons, by the power of Jesus and the power of Paul, they're just trying to imitate what Paul does. Paul says by, you know, I heal you in the name of Jesus. So these imitators are saying, we'll just do the same thing. In fact, verse 14, it says, there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest by the name of Sceva who was doing this. And this is when it gets funny. Uh, they're proclaiming healing in the name of Jesus and Paul. In verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, and he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Like if you think about, uh, think about the movie uh, Lion King, remember that scene where, where, where young Simba is trapped into the cave, and you got the hyenas coming after him, and this is little baby Simba, and little baby Simba, what does he do? He, he tries to growl. He goes, Rarrr! but he's such a little lion there. They just laugh at him like, yeah, you're not the real deal. That's what this evil spirit, like these, these seven sons are like, hey, by the name of Jesus, by the name of Paul, come out. And the evil spirit's like, I don't even know who you are. You guys are nobodies. And then it gets better. Verse 16, the man who, who had the evil spirit he leapt on them, and he mastered all of them, and he overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. There was a fight. There was a fight that goes on. The seven sons of Sceva against this man with the evil spirit. And guess who won the fight? Like, like I don't know, you ever, you ever watch like a UFC fight or a boxing fight? The commentators, man, there's always a dialogue. Man, who won the fight? Now, I don't know about you, but when you go into a fight with your pants on and you go out of the fight and your pants are off, I'm pretty sure you lost the fight, right? Right? These guys got their booty whooped. Uh, okay, here's my warning, though. Let's not judge the sons of Sceva. Because how, how often do we want to be like them? We want the power of God. We want God's gifts. We want God's blessings. We want people to think, oh man, they're such a good person. We want people to think, man, they appear so godly. Oh, how many times do we want the blessings of God? Yet yeah, now yet not actually want to surrender and follow God. Oh God, we want what you'll do for us, but I, we don't actually want you. We just want your blessings. Dr. Rick Warren said this. He said, the power of God is not produced by imitation, but by inhabitation. And this is where I hope you see you've got Paul 
as a guy who is sold out for God. He is fully surrendered. And what is God doing? God is using him to change people's lives all around him. This is someone who is, is surrendered fully to God. And then you've got these exorcists and these sons of Sceva. They're not surrendered to God. They're just trying to have some of the power of God. And that's not where the power of God is found. It's not found through imitation. It is found through us surrendering fully to God. Third thing about authentic faith is Jesus is fully worshipped. You see, in response to these uh, imitators that are humiliated, it says in verse 17, this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And they became afraid, and the name of the Lord was held with high esteem. Listen, when we see the fear of the Lord in the Bible, like we need to clarify, this doesn't mean that they're afraid of like the boogie monster or afraid of an abusive father. No, this fear of the Lord means that, that God is reverenced, that God is honored. It carries this idea, again, we see it in verse 17, it carries this idea of esteem. That when we recognize God for who he is, uh, he is uh, great and powerful and gracious and all-loving. When we recognize God for who he is, we can't help but esteem him and worship him and magnify him and declare him to be great. That's what's happening here is they see, man, this God of Paul is remarkable. And we can't help but, but worship him. More worship goes beyond just esteem. Look at verse 18. It says, Many of those who became believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You know what they're doing? They're coming and confessing their sin. They hear about this God, about this Savior in Jesus. They're so blown away. They come and they confess their sin. What makes me like so surprised, like if you've been in church for a long time, clearly these people haven't learned how to play the church game, right? Like, like we know how to play the church game. Like we walk in a church and the greeter says, how you doing? And we know the church game is to say, we don't say, oh man, my life's falling apart, man. It was a horrible week. We got in a fight and it's bad. No, you walk in a church and you're like, man, I'm blessed. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That's how you play the church game, right? These people didn't learn the church game that when you're sitting in church and you're feeling conviction, you need to just shift your mind to think, oh, somebody else needs to hear this message. Oh, this person, man, I wish this person was here. They're the ones that need to hear this because there's no way God would actually convict you and I of sin. No, that conviction is for someone else, right? That's how we play the church game. But not these guys. They're looking and saying, man, God is so great that they can see their areas of their life that don't line up to the God that they are confessing. And so they confess their sin, lay it at the altar, agreeing with God, hey, I'm going to call my sin what you call it. It's sin. It's not something I can justify. It's not something I can excuse. No, I'm actually going to say, God, what I'm doing is wrong, and I'm sorry for that. That's pretty remarkable to me. And look at verse 19. It says, A number of those who practice the magic arts, they brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of 50 
8,000 pieces of silver, which is the equivalent of about $8 million. These guys, like their magic books was their livelihood. It is how they provided for themselves. And when they realized, like, this doesn't line up with God's expectation for my life, they took those magic books and they burned them despite the cost. Can you imagine, like if we truly worship God for who he is, if we, can, if we were willing not to just justify our sin, but actually to confess our sin, can you imagine what would be burned in our day and age? Like I remember, I remember going to a youth camp again many years ago, and at the end of camp, what do they do? They have a bonfire, and you take your CDs, and you burn your CDs because, well, you shouldn't be listening to that kind of music. But if, like, we actually took sin seriously, what are the things that we'd be burning today? Internet browsers? From things we shouldn't be looking at? That needs to get burned. Our Spotify account? Our social media accounts that we know we're doing things we probably shouldn't be following, these type of people, listening to this kind of... Burned. TV shows. Movies. This is what authentic faith looks like. In fact, think back to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus said, church at Ephesus, you have abandoned your first Love. You're not pursuing faith like you used to. And what does Jesus say to do? He says, go back to your first love. Do the works you did at first. Be people that proclaim and stand for the gospel. Be people that are fully surrendered to God. Not halfway, not partway, fully surrendered to God. Be people that are willing to worship God fully which includes being willing to confess our sin and repent of those things. And guess what? This church at Ephesus, that's what they were doing in the beginning. And verse 20, because of that, because they did these things, it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is where we see the church at Ephesus literally as a movement that's going to take the gospel all across the continent of Asia. But here's, here's a summary for this message. As we think about, man, how do we find God's power and God's blessing for our life? God's power, God's blessing are found as a result of our authentic faith. An authentic faith that proclaims and lives out the gospel. An authentic faith that is fully, wholly surrendered to God an authentic faith that worships God fully. And maybe today, maybe Jesus would say the same thing to us. Maybe Jesus would say to us, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you first had. Are you following Jesus as passionately as you were when you first found faith? Are you intentional about your faith and being fully in, or are you just going through the motions? You know, as we get ready to do some application, you know, church experts would say, 
hey, if you're going to grow a big church, you just need to make the people feel good. Make them happy. Make it all positive. We're not going to do that today. And I'll tell you, like, I want to see our church grow. But more important than that, I want to see the power of God in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our city. Three questions. Number one, if we're going to have the power of God and authentic faith, when's the last time you actually shared the gospel with someone else? Because you know what's remarkable in the book of Acts? What I love about the book of Acts is we, we learn a lot about leaders. I mean, we're hearing about, about Peter, and we're hearing about Barnabas, and Paul, and Apollos, and the leaders are great. But the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and becomes a movement, not because of the leaders. It is a result of ordinary people. Ordinary people that are so convinced of the truth of the gospel. People that are convinced that this message, this Jesus, what Jesus has done for us is the hope of the world. People that are convinced that the gospel will solve man's deepest problems, that will meet man's greatest needs. The gospel, the church becomes a movement when we take that message into our homes and our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces. Listen, are you passionate about the gospel? Do you believe the gospel is the hope of the world? Do you believe that people will go to hell if they don't know about Jesus? Because I tell you what, if we believe those things, why would we not be more passionate about getting people to hear this message to where they can experience not just feeling good, but the gospel change that comes from a relationship with him. When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When's the last time you talked to somebody else about what God is doing in your life? When's the last time that along the dinner table with your kids you had a gospel conversation? When's the last time that you're getting ready to have Thanksgiving and it's a big enough message that even though some Uncle Fred's going to get annoyed, you still believe that it is the solution to the world's problems, and you're going to proclaim the message again and again and again because it is that powerful. See, an authentic faith is rooted in the hope of the gospel. And if we truly believe that the gospel is that true, how could we not be passionate about inviting other people into that same life-changing experience? Number two, if we're going to have the power of God, if we're going to have this authentic faith, are you wholly surrendered to God? Are you just coming to get what God can do for you? You want his blessings? You want him to make your kids obedient. You want him to solve some problems in your life. You want him to give you some power. You want him to bless you financially. Are you just using God for his stuff? Or have you actually surrendered to him? 
Because you know what happens is as we step into church and we, we, we hear about the power of God, we hear stories about God at work in people's lives, and we, we get inspired. We hear about God using people like Peter, and we're like, man, I want to be like that. God, would you use me? God, would you bless me? And then we go a couple of days, and we look around, and we're like, man, God, why aren't you using me? God, I said that's what I want. God, God, why aren't you, why aren't you, why aren't you blessing me? Reality is, how many of us are fully surrendered to God in the first place? Because it's funny, it's funny. We say, God, 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 I give you my life, but God, don't touch my finances. Oh, I can't do that. God, 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 I give you my life, except for my dating life. I can't give that to you. No, I'm not going to do that. God, God, I, I, I'm yours. Just, just don't tell me to not look at those things on my phone. We say, God, God, I want a relationship with you. God, just don't tell me how to act. Just don't tell me what to do. God, God, I need you to heal my marriage. Just don't tell me how to treat my spouse. It's funny how we say, God, I want these things, but we're not fully surrendered to him. I'm not asking you this morning that there's something in your life that is competing with God. I'm not asking what is in your life that you haven't given God access to. I'm not asking that because I already know the answer to it. We all have those areas. We all have those things. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you willing to wholly surrender to God? God, I give myself to you. And guess what? When you say do this, okay, because I've given myself to you. Number three, we're going to have the power of God and authentic faith. Will you fully worship God? You know, we hear that word worship, and we're like, oh, we do good worship. I love to sing the songs, and I even lift my hands sometimes, and my foot might tap, and my hips might shake a little bit. And yeah, I love, I love the worship music, and, and I jump in and sing, and I'll, and I'll just say, like, like, I love restoration. Like, we do worship good. Praise God that he's given us some great leaders and musicians. Like, we do good. And I love that we get to proclaim the greatness of God in song. But do you realize worship is so much bigger than just singing some songs? In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, he said, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, Present your bodies, listen to this, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what does he say? This is your true worship. That we give ourselves wholly to God. He says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I'm going to invite you this morning to worship. 
And the worship team is going to come up in just a minute, and we're going to sing a song that declares God's goodness and greatness, and that is awesome. But I'm going to take some cues from this church at Ephesus, and I'm going to invite us to do a little more than just sing. I'm going to invite you this morning to actually come forward and confess sin. I remember meeting with a counselor at one point. The counselor said, hey, when you're struggling, one of the things you have to do is you have to learn how to name your struggle. Because we are so quick to struggle silently, to think we can manage it, and you keep it quiet, and that thing consumes you. We think, man, I I can get a handle on this, and it just spirals out of control. He said, when you name it, when you verbally share it with another person, guess what? It makes it real. It makes it tangible. It's a place that you can begin to tackle whatever that is. In fact, I was talking to a guy this week, and he said, do you know how many people in the church are bound and enslaved in sin? because they're afraid. Afraid to get bound out. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another. And listen, listen to this, that you may be healed. We confess our sins to one another so we can be healed. Listen, there is healing and freedom when we're willing to deal with our issues, to acknowledge them, instead of just thinking, I can manage it on my own, I'm just going to handle it. Because I'll tell you what, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who does everything in his power to say, you know what, you don't need to confess this. You don't need to confess. You know, if you go and confess that you're a sinner, and you confess your sin, people are going to judge you. There's going to be shame, there might be fallout. There might be impacts of you acknowledging that you're not perfect. And guess what Satan does? He keeps us in that spot where we get ourselves digger and deeper and deeper in trouble. Because we're not willing just to say, this is where I'm at. Here's where I'm struggling. How many people do we know that have blown up their lives from some secret sin they've tried to manage for years? Instead of being willing to confess it early on to get help and support for things to be indifferent. You know, restoration, one of the things we say about restoration is we're a, a, a people that celebrate progress rather than perfection. Which means we take that idea of being perfect off the table. None of us are. Last time we did something like this, invited people to come forward and confess. It was funny because the first person who came forward was a guest. It wasn't even one of our regular attenders. No shame on that. But do you believe this is a place that celebrates progress rather than perfection? I'm going to invite you to show it. Come forward. Confess. No judgment. There's no shame. No one's going to think less of you. The reality is every one of us in here are struggling with something. There's some anger in our life. Some bitterness towards a person. 
There's some things that we're watching that we shouldn't be watching. There's some, whatever it happens to be, addiction that we can't get a hold of. I'm going to have a couple of leaders come forward during the song. And I'm going to invite you just to do this, to come forward and to confess. I'm not talking about Catholic confession. We can't, we can't forgive you. Only Christ can do that. But as you come forward, we're going to just say, hey, we pray for you. We're going to pray for you that God will minister to you and you'll experience God's grace. Again, is this the way you grow at church? I don't know. But I'll say I'm desperate for the power of God. That's what I want. I want God at work in my family, in my life, in our church, and in our city. I want God to be glorified. So I'm asking you, would we, would you live out this authentic faith and worship God 